Well, that's BossConf over for another season, and all of us here at Business of Software want to say thank you to the amazing people at Balsamic, Kevl, Logi Analytics, PDQ.com, Service Rocket, and Software Promotions for putting their faith in us and for supporting BossConf Online Fall. To find out more about these great companies, head over to businessofsoftware.org fall. Hello and welcome to episode 86 of the Boss Podcast. I am Kirk Bailey, back bringing you another great talk from the BossConf archives. This week we pick up on a conversation that we had at BossConf Online Fall this year about founders. And we join Jessica Livingston's talk from Boss USA, Founders at Work. Business of Software podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Jessica Livingston is an American author and a founding partner of the seed stage venture firm Y Combinator, working with early stage startups since 2005. In this talk, Jessica, the author of Founders at Work, talks about the many lessons she learned from her interviews with the likes of Paul Graham, Steve Wozniak, Mitch Kapoor and Jules Bolsky, to name but a few. Happy listening. So actually, I've had sort of a weird thing happen today. I My first job out of college was right upstairs and I hadn't put two and two together. It was one of those horrible jobs you look back on and wonder how you possibly endured, endured it. I worked at Fidelity Investments uh, on the night shift, taking phone calls from retail customers who often called very angrily, wondering why their portfolio had gone down. Um, so it's really nice to be back here 15 years later under these circumstances to talk to you about founders at work and startups. Um, so founders at work, um, as Joel mentioned, it's a collection of interviews that I did with 32 different startup founders about the earliest days of their companies. Um, most of them were startup or were software companies. Um, and I asked them questions like, you know, what were the biggest challenges when you first got started? What went wrong? What do you wish you had known? Because if you haven't done a startup yourself, what happens in the earliest phases is going to be just so mysterious. There's not a whole lot of information out there. Um, so I wanted to sort of uncover what happened so that everyone could, could learn from that. And so I hope through this book I created a fund of experience um, filled with good advice and gripping stories and, and interesting lessons. Um, but we can also learn some other things from founders at work, or at least I did. Um, you can see what, what do successful startups founders all have in common. Um, you can also see what productivity, you know, boiled down to its essence looked like. Because let me tell you, early stage startups are the most productive organizations out there. Um, so a lot of the themes in the book are pretty predictable. Um, you know, the founders started off without much money and they worked really hard on their companies. But I'm going to talk today about themes that you might not have predicted, uh, so surprising themes. Um, then I'm going to talk a, li a little bit about what I've learned from these themes through my experience at Y Combinator, which is a seed stage investment company. And then after that, I'm going to just talk a little bit wh about what I think big companies can learn from the productivity of startups. Okay, so one of the biggest surprises to me was just how unsure the founders were 
about starting a company, or how unsure they were about how big their idea was ultimately going to turn out to be. I mean, it's really easy to forget that a lot of these very famous entrepreneurs were not famous when they first started out. Um, Steve Wozniak, when he started Apple, he was an employee of Hewlett Packard. He had no interest in starting a company. He was an engineer at HP and said he wanted to stay there for life. And his partner, Steve Jobs, you know, took the business side much more seriously. Surprise, surprise. So um, Woz actually developed the Apple I and the prototype for the Apple II while he was at HP. And Jobs lined up some funding for them. So the investors said, okay, you know, you're gonna work on, you gotta work on this company full time. So they gave Woz an ultimatum because he didn't want to leave HP. They gave him a deadline that he had to make up his mind to leave. And so he met up with Jobs and the investor and said, I'm not going to leave HP and here are the reasons why. Um, and one of the biggest reasons, he said, was sort of a psychological barrier that he had. He felt that you know, if he went to start his own business, he'd be a business guy and he'd stop being an engineer. Um, and he didn't want that. So Jobs was very displeased, as you can imagine, with this decision. So mysteriously, over the next couple days, Waz got these phone calls from family members and friends sort of encouraging him to change his mind about this decision. And um, it wasn't until one of his friends said, you know, you can still stay an engineer, but at Apple, you know, you don't have to turn into a business guy. It wasn't until he sort of grasped that concept that he said, okay, I'll start Apple. Um, so Apple almost didn't get started. Um, Mina Trott, who founded Six Apart with her husband, Ben. Um, Six Apart makes blogging software like Movable Type and TypePad and now LiveJournal. Um, they had been laid off from their previous employer and were at home. And she was a blogger herself, so they thought, well, let's just work on some software that we'd actually want to use, some blogging software. So they worked on it and they said, you know, let's just launch this. We'll launch it as donationware and see what happens. And then, then we'll go out and get real jobs. So they launched the software for movable type and users loved it. So they sort of said, okay, you know, I guess we'll start a company now. Um, or sometimes the founders might be certain that they want to start their own company, but they have no idea what the idea is going to be. Um, Joe Krause, when he started Excite, he started it with five of his college dorm mates. They had no idea what the idea was going to be. They'd meet up at night for dinner and like brainstorm ideas, and I think they picked the one that seemed the least ridiculous to start out with. Um, Joel Spolsky, when he first started Bog Creek, they started it as a consulting company. You know, they had no idea exactly what their software product was ultimately going to be. And um, they launched Fogbugs, you know, because they themselves used it. And they thought, you know, if we use it, maybe there are going to be people out there who will buy it. And they launched it, and, you know, the rest is history. Um, Max Levchin, he studied cryptography as an undergrad. And when he moved to Silicon Valley, he knew he wanted to get involved in startups or start one himself. And he knew he wanted to do it in the security space because that was his specialty. But he had no idea what you know, the idea that ultimately became PayPal was going to be. 
Um, I'll spend more time on that on the later slide. Um, but the point is, like, none of the founders, when they started the companies, knew all the answers. In fact, I'd, I'd say they were kind of clueless half the time, um, but that's okay. You know, ignorance, I think, a lot of the founders might agree that sometimes it's an advantage. Maybe it's good not to know, you know, know what to expect. I mean, Waz said that some of the best things that he ever built at Apple were a result of never having built them before. Um, so you'll have tons of holes in your knowledge when you're doing something that's so new. But the good news is that you know, you'll fill these holes by being super energetic and determined. Um, so uncertainty, one of the causes for uncertainty happens to actually be the next surprising theme that I found, which is rejection. It's amazing how much the founders in this book were rejected early on um, by employers, the press, investors, friends, you name it. Um, and although sometimes rejection is deserved, a lot of times ideas are dismissed as unpromising very early on because they're so new. Um, a new idea is always going to look bad because no one's ever done it before. Um, if it didn't look bad, someone might already be doing it, and then, of course, it, it wouldn't be new. So the people faced a lot of rejection. Um, and there were a few examples in the book where um, the startups would not have been started had the founders' employers not rejected them. Um, as I mentioned, Waz was employed at HP when he built the Apple and the Apple II. And you know, because he was an employee there, he felt, you know, of course, you know, HP owns this intellectual property. I should offer it up to them to first see if they want to produce this computer. So he talked to his, ex his superiors and showed them the product, and the legal department reached out to all the other departments at HP and said, here's the plan. Does anyone want to produce this? And no one, no department wanted to produce this personal computer. Um, you know, in their defense, I think he might have still been using like a TV screen for the monitor, and so it probably seemed very lowbrow, but still the point is they didn't want to produce what became like the most popular personal computer out there. So once he got rejected by every department there, he said, okay, you know, we'll have to do it through Apple. Um, Mitch Kapor, who started Lotus, you know, right across the river here, he was employed at the company that distributed VisiCalc which was the first electronic spreadsheet. And he had a lot of ideas for ways that he thought that you know, VisiCal could be improved. And he told his superiors about these ideas. And no one was really interested. And they sort of rejected him. He said that they, they thought of him as a pest. And like, they didn't think he had the right credentials. He didn't have a degree in computer science and that sort of thing. And fortunately for him, his superiors felt that he was so unthreatening that they actually let him out of a very important non-compete clause in his contract just to kind of get rid of him. Um, and this allowed him to go off and start Lotus Development, which of course made Lotus 1, 2, 3, which you know, wound up eating VisiCalc for lunch, basically. So it's amazing how much rejection they faced. And you know, looking back on some of these big ideas, it's just kind of mind-blowing to think how many of them were rejected when they first came out. Um, early on in Hotmail's history, 
Um, the founders were talking to Yahoo about possibly acquiring them. And Yahoo passed, you know, they just didn't think that people would really want to check their email from, you know, a website, go figure. Um, ViaWeb, which built uh, online store building software. It was actually the first web-based company, web-based software company. Um, and at the time, like, no one really grasped what web-based software was. In fact, one of their investors um, made them package up a box, you know, via web software in, in a box that they sold at stores that, you know, consumers could go take off the shelf and buy because they felt like that's the way people buy software. And there was nothing to put in it because it was web-based. So they included like a little card with a URL on it in this box. I mean, <laughs> it seems so ridiculous, but they did it. Um, Gmail. So Gmail isn't exactly a startup, but in many ways it sort of acted like a startup within Google. So I included the interview in the book, um, and it's pretty interesting. And you know, there were a bunch of powerful people at Google that wanted to kill that project. Um, and one of the reasons was because they feared it used too much JavaScript. Um, you know, at the time, they thought that that seemed like a really risky way to write software. You know, yet JavaScript as part of Ajax, you know, became like the essence of Web 2.0 um, a little bit later. Um, and for all you people, if anyone's checking their Blackberries, listen to this one. Um, when Research in Motion first came out with Blackberry, the Blackberry device, they actually marketed it as a two-way pager because they didn't believe that customers would, you know, believe that they'd have a need to check their email away from their computer, you know, traveling or at a conference or something like that. That's the most shocking one to me. Um, so another surprising theme was how much the ideas change in an early, you know, in the early phases of a, a startup. Um, you don't hear about it too much because the founders are still kind of laboring away in obscurity. Um, you don't hear much about it until they come up with their brilliant idea. Um, but it's important to understand that ideas change a lot because the process of finding, like figuring out what users actually like is a much longer road than most people realize. There's just, there's tons of trial and error and tons of, of time where you feel like you're just not making any progress and you'll never figure this out. Um, so that's an important thing to keep in mind. I mentioned before PayPal, when Max Levchin first started, he wanted to do something in security. PayPal actually went through like something like seven or eight different business iterations. Um, when they got VC funding, it was for an idea to transfer money through handheld devices, um, so on their, on their PDA. And they had this big event that the press all attended at Buck's restaurant in Woodside, where the VC like beamed $4 million over to PayPal, and it was this really cool, cool thing. Um, but what they learned very soon afterward was very interesting. Um, the founders had put up on the web um, similar software to what was used in their device, but it was sort of a, it was functionally the same, but it was on the web, they didn't really care about it, it was really just to sort of show people how 
how the software works and get them excited and download the handheld device software. So they started getting all these emails from people saying, hey, we love your you know, web version. Can we use it on our site? And they got all these emails from people who you know, used a site called eBay saying, we want to use your software on our site. Can we? And you know, Max was like, no, no, go away. We don't want you. Um, you know, we do this software on handheld devices. And then it didn't take t too long before they realized like the light bulb went off and they said, wait a second, this is what users want. You know, there's sort of a, the growth of the users for the handheld device stuff is stopping and everyone's asking for this web-based version. So they switched and they focused um, exclusively on the web-based version that, that PayPal is today. Um, TiVo, when they first started, they had like this elaborate home entertainment plan that they got VC funding for. And they, as they worked on it, they kind of realized like consumers just aren't ready for this. This is way too complex. So they whittled their idea down to just one component, which was the DVR component of their elaborate idea, and focused on that. And that turned out to be a very difficult problem to solve technically. Um, so, you know, that's what TiVo is today. Um, so ideas change. Um, sometimes the biggest obstacle for founders is the idea that they think that they should be working on. Um, for example, Flickr. Uh, they started out building a massively multiplayer online game, and they had been working on this for a while. And then they launched this feature that was like an IM chat thing that allowed you to share photos with people. And consumers just like went bananas over this feature. And they thought, oh my god, everyone's like using this aspect of it. And they had to do a lot of soul searching. And they finally decided to focus full time on this feature and give up the game. Um, but that was you know, a hard decision to make. Um, Blogger, when Evan Williams started Pyra Labs, which is what makes Blogger, um, he was doing an idea for like web-based project management tools. And he just built the software for Blogger to like use internally to help the founders keep track of what they were working on and communicate. And this software that they used was so useful for them that they decided, let's just launch this software and see how users respond. Um, actually, the story is a lot more interesting and complex than that, so I highly recommend reading that that chapter, but that's kind of the way this, the story went. Um, so you'll notice like a little theme going on here, which is that a lot of ideas change based on users' feedback. Um, and that's one of the great things about software startups. You can launch early and make changes based on users' feedback. And if something doesn't work, you can change it back. Um, and early adopters will have a lot of great input. Um, it's kind of like, if you wanted to test market you know, fast food chain, you'd probably do it in Columbus, Ohio, because I think, I think Columbus, Ohio is, is said to have like the most average people in America. So you like test out the fast food chain there. If you want to test market something really novel in technology, you do it with early adopters. Um, so this flexibility to evolve your idea very early on when you start is like what I think one of the secret weapons of a, of a startup. Um, 
You don't have tons of decision makers to go through to test something out. You just do it. Um, and you don't have to worry about your brand um, because you don't have one. Um, so lastly, um, the last surprise is just how many of the ideas for these very successful companies just came from the founders trying to like solve their own problems. Um, Waz, like he did not build the Apple One to be a product. He built it because he wanted his own computer. He had always wanted his own computer. He dreamed of that and you know, hardware prices fell and so he was able to afford to build himself one. Um, Hotmail, when they first started, the two founders were colleagues and they <clears throat> had an idea for a startup that they wanted to do and they wanted to work on it a little bit at work, but they couldn't because the company had a firewall installed that prevented them from accessing their personal email accounts. And so that frustrated them. And they thought, gosh, how can we solve this problem? You know, what if we could create an email account that you could access from any computer? And so they came up with this idea for a web-based email. And of course, as soon as they came up with that and it worked, they realized like, whoa, this is the big idea. So they ditched their old idea and worked on a Hotmail. Um, Delicious started, Joshua Schachter was employed on Wall Street. And he started it on the side like as a hobby just to help manage his own collection of 20,000 bookmarks. Um, Craigslist started as like an email list because Craig Newmark you know, wanted to keep his friends posted on interesting events going out on in the Bay Area. Um, so you know, founders are just kind of curious people by nature. They'll often try to actually fix something that's broken or like improve something that, that they themselves use. So if you're thinking of your own ideas, just ask yourself, like, what do I need? What do I think sucks that could be improved? Um, you know, what just became possible in the last 10 years? You know, um, look for new, new, new techniques that wouldn't have been possible um, 10 years ago. You know, Apple only became possible because of advances in chip technology. Um, so people ask me all the time, what do all the founders have in common in the book? Um, and I think I've boiled it down to two important things. And that is that they all made something people wanted and they did not give up. Um, in fact, make something people want we think is so important that it's Y Combinator's motto. Um, and I, I think this is a recipe for starting a startup. I mean, it's a tough recipe. It's a lot easier said than done, but you know, it's important to sort of acknowledge that these are two really important components of starting your own company. Um, so in Founders at Work, I interviewed most of the people it was after the fact. Their company had been acquired, they'd sort of moved on. They were able to look back and reflect on the different challenges that they faced. Um, at Y Combinator, I'm able to observe these same phenomena in real time. Um, we founded Y Combinator in 2005 in, in March, and my three partners are Paul Graham, Robert Morris, and Trevor Blackwell, who had founded ViaWeb. Um, we provide very small amounts of seed funding to startups at the very earliest stages. Um, 
you know, we were usually the first investors in, in these companies. And when I say small amounts, I mean small amounts. It's like fifteen to $20,000 um, per startup. And we do it twice a year in batches. In the summertime, it's in Cambridge. And then in the wintertime, it's in Silicon Valley. Um, and so we've invested in you know, more than 100 at this point. So we have a lot of data about early stage companies. Sometimes it's too much data. Um, but you know, all these things I've told you that I've, I've learned from founders at work, um, I see confirmed in, in the startups that we've funded. It's kind of like, it's like interviewing the founders for the book was like at standing at the top of this mountain and seeing all these founders successfully arrive at the top and they had all these tools with them. And it wasn't until Y Combinator that I could see what they did with these tools on the way up the mountain. Um, for instance, you know, I noticed that at the people at the top of the mountain had this just insane amount of determination. Um, and now, through Y Combinator, I know why. So perseverance, in my opinion, is the number one quality for a startup founder. Um, you just you face so many obstacles and so many near-death experiences that you just need it just to like wake up every morning. Um, but you also need it just like to find the right idea and survive through that period of trial and error. Because I'm telling you, if you're a big success, chances are it will not be because of your initial idea, but what you've discovered as you try to implement that initial idea. Um, startups are like a roller coaster. And because there are just a few of you, you don't have a large organization around you to kind of damp the swings of fortune. Um, Joe Krause, in his interview, said that one day he'd wake up in the morning and say, we're kicking ass. And then the next day, he'd wake up and say, oh, we're dead. And like literally, nothing had changed in that 24-hour period. It's all, it's awful. In fact, that's one of the biggest complaints we get from the people we fund is just all the mood swings that they have to endure. But you know, perseverance also can help you with competition. Like merely by staying alive and outlasting your competitors, you get in a good position. I mean, we give advice all the time to founders saying, like, just don't die, just stay alive. And it seems sort of ridiculous. Paul Graham wrote a whole essay on how not to die. Um, it seems so silly, but it's true because a lot of your competitors are startups themselves, and they're facing all these near-death experiences, and they're running out of money. And so if you can just stay alive longer than they can, you'll be in a good position. Um, and we, there are just so many reasons why you're going to want to quit a startup. You know, traffic is stagnant. You know, you can't convince anyone to invest in you. You maybe are arguing amongst the founders. Um, there's a small team, so morale can get super low. It's really easy to say, oh boy, this isn't exactly what I had envisioned. I think I'll go back and finish that degree at graduate school. Um, so it's really easy to quit. And, and startups, from what we've noticed in the first year, definitely in the first six months, the startups that die, it's due to suicide. It's not due to competition. Um, so this is all kind of depressing. The good news is that like, if you can endure these things, you will get tougher. Um, it'll seem daunting at first, but you'll, you'll get through it. Um, so let's talk for a second about the second ingredient 
that's important to be a successful founder. Um, keeping in mind that your idea is never going to be perfect at first, you're going to have to adapt it. And founders really need mental flexibility <clears throat> in order to do this. Um, a lot of the companies, in fact, I'd probably say most all of the companies that we fund have changed their idea to some extent. Um, Justin TV originally started off producing a single reality TV broadcast, and now it's like evolved into this platform for users to watch and broadcast live video and chat. Uh, oh, yeah, 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 I heard that. Joel brings up a good point. So Justin TV started off as Kiko. Um, they were an online calendar that was in the same funding cycle as Alexis of Reddit, our first one. And they were doing this cool, like, Ajax calendar. It's a bad example, though, Joel, because they were killed by their competition. Because Google, <laughs> Google came out with Google Calendar, like, the week after they did. And they, they came up with a better idea. They came up with an idea that, that they wanted to work on, which I, of course, thought was absolutely insane. Justin was going to wear this. TV camera and broadcast his entire life 24 hours a day. I thought it was ridiculous, but we funded them anyway, and now they're doing really well. Um, Scribd, they started off. Um, Scribd is now, like I think, according to Alexa, one of like the top 500 sites. Um, they started off wanting to change the way academic publishing was done. Um, they realized pretty early on that this is kind of a niche market, so they expanded and now like they have every PDF on the web on their site. So try different things out, um, but recognize when something's not working and move on. Um, and then lastly, I talked earlier about how many of the successful startup ideas just came from founders trying to solve their own problems. Um, and this has really been true with most of the startups, well, a lot of the startups that we funded. Um, Dropbox, <coughs> which I think you can find on getdropbox.com, they started because they, the founders wanted an easy way to back up and sync their files across different computers. Um, luckily for them, they had built this software and were using it because a year or so ago, they were visiting San Francisco and their laptops were stolen and they retrieved all of their data because they themselves were using their own product. Um, so that worked for them. Um, Bounty, um, which does um, comparison, like price comparison searches, the founders were obsessed themselves with finding discounts online. And they were really good at it. And they realized that, you know, actually it's kind of hard to be really good at this. So maybe we can start a startup around this idea. And, you know, they're doing pretty well. They're what we call ramen profitable. Um, so <laughs> look for, you know, if you're thinking of your own ideas, a lot of the people in this room are very technical. You know, so any problems that you need to solve for yourself are probably ones that other people will need in four years. So even if your idea is really small uh, to start with, that's okay. There are usually a lot of ways to expand it. Um, okay, so I've talked a lot about stuff that's specific to early stage startups. Um, but how much of this applies to other companies? Um, structurally, I think big companies like can't do all 
of the things that startups do. But I think they can try to adapt some of the qualities about startups that make them so productive. Um, OK, I'll go through these kind of quickly. But um, what makes a startup so productive? Um, why are people, I should say, why are people in startups so productive? Um, I'll start just by looking at just a few of the things that make them so productive, and then I'll sort of talk about how I think they could be adapted. Um, so money. <laughs> Employees have equity. And this can become valuable if the company succeeds. So the employee you know, has that incentive to work on the weekends and to get up out of bed at 3 in the morning if they have an idea about something. Um, a salaried employee might not do that. Um, a lot of times, especially in the early stages, startups are done at home, um, which definitely has its disadvantages. But it also means that you don't have to commute, and you can kind of work whenever you are feeling most productive. You know, I know a lot of hackers work all through the night. I, you know, three in the morning, they're at their most productive. Um, and so that's very convenient to be at home when you, when you do that. Um, you don't have interruptions in early stage startups. There's you know, so few people that you don't have a lot of bureaucracy and meetings and bosses and performance reviews. So that just means like you're just working. You can always be in flow. Um, also, you don't have to you know, ask anyone's approval. If you think there's a good idea that you want to test out, you're not sure if it's going to work, you just do it. You don't need to like obtain anyone's permission to do that. Um, at a startup, individual performance is much more visible. And this is actually one of my favorite aspects of a startup. Um, I shouldn't have it buried in this slide. But in a startup, like your performance is not judged by your manager. It's judged by the market. If you build something that's really good and you launch it online, like users will find you and use it. They don't care how old you are or what gender or race you are or like where you went to college. All they care about is if they like their pro like your product. So the market judges you. Um, there's not much politics going on at startups. So that means like the people who build the product usually win versus people who are politicians. Um, and lastly, like startups have no brand to worry about. It's so early on that they can take more risks and don't have to worry about damaging their brand. Um, so I won't spend too much time on this, but I just wanted to say you know, what I thought people could learn from these the, the productivity that exists in these early stage startups. Um, you know, obviously big companies can't reproduce all of these things, but they can think about like why these things work for startups and see how they can translate them into their own company. Um, so, you know, employees being more motivated because they have a piece of the action. Well, try to make compensation vary a little bit more. You know, in a big company there's so many people and you have a salary, you you don't see what effect your hard work has and often you don't get compensated for that appropriately. So I mean, it will obviously be hard to give everyone equity if you have a company with 50,000 people, but maybe there are other ways. Maybe it's profit sharing or bonuses, something like that. Um, working where you live. You know, maybe you can make your office 
a little bit more like home in some respects. Um, you, know, you read a lot about you know, Google's famous for its cafeteria with all of this food, and I've eaten there, and it's like better than the restaurants in town. And you know, they're not just doing that to be nice. They're doing that because it makes their employees more productive. If their employee gets hungry at the end of the day, they don't get in their car and leave the office to go have dinner. They go grab dinner at work, and like maybe they go back and finish that project they were working on, or maybe they have a meeting over dinner with their colleagues. Um, you can also try to let people work from home um, more often. That's a little bit dangerous. It totally depends on the, the type of company you are, because sometimes working from home can be synonymous with slacking off. But you know, if you can do a good job of measuring performance, <coughs> I know it makes a big difference. Because like I said, you're often like not always productive from 9 to 5. Maybe it's at 11 o'clock at night that you're productive. Um, so no interruptions. This is a really important one. And it seems obvious. Like meetings can waste time. But meetings can waste more time than that one hour. You think, oh, it's just going to be an hour. It's just going to be half an hour. But if you're working on something that requires a lot of concentration, if you're programming or you're writing or something, like breaking up your morning or afternoon with an hour-long meeting costs more than just that, that one hour. So recognize the costs associated with the different interruptions. You know, ask yourself, is it worth setting up this meeting with these 10 people that I'm going to invite? Just think about it. Don't, just don't treat interruptions as normal. Treat them as something very special. Um, at Y Combinator, we don't, we're not allowed to have meetings. Um, in fact, you know, that was Paul's thing. When he was at ViaWeb, he didn't allow meetings. And he once told me this story about how he walked by this group of three people sitting at a table, sitting down, and they all sort of jumped up and said, don't worry, we're not having a meeting, because it was just so frowned upon at ViaWeb. Um, so you don't have to explain why something is good. Um, let employees test things out on a hunch. Let them test things out in a lightweight way. If it doesn't work, you know, take it down. Steve Kaufer um, of TripAdvisor, who I also interviewed for Founders at Work, he says like they do this all the time at, at TripAdvisor. If someone has an idea that they think, hey, this could work, but I'm not sure, he lets them test it out. And so it still operates very much like a startup um, to this day. Um, but keep in mind, remember, if you're a big company, that you know ideas that are new are going to seem really crazy because no one's ever done them. So resist the urge to like say no to that employee because that idea seems sort of crazy. Um, so individual performance being more visible at a startup. This is a tricky one. Um, at a big company, you know, you have lots of people. So one thing you can do is try to bring more market forces into your company. You know, like I said before, at a startup, the market judges your performance and, and the success of that product. Um, maybe there are ways to bring that sort of market force into these big companies. Like maybe you bring, you push the P&L down into that, apart, into that, you know, different departments to make them more accountable. Um, politics, same thing, that's really hard to avoid when you have a company that's bigger than I think the number is like 20 people or something. But try, you know, try those market forces can, can help um, get rid of some politics. But, you know, remember to 
that people win by making their customers happy. They shouldn't win by just being liked by your, you know, your manager within the company. Um, and then lastly, um, recognize that like as a bigger company, you worry about your brand, but you know maybe you can get away with a little bit more failure. I mean, look at, at Google again. I think they're a pretty good example. Um, I know they care very much about their brand, but you know they still release a lot of things that aren't so great. I mean, I don't know about you, but who uses who uses Frugal that much? I mean, I certainly don't. I wouldn't call that a real winner. But what it shows you is that you're judged based based by based on your best stuff and not your worst. So take more risks and release more stuff. Um, so just lastly. Um, I wanted to talk about the specific qualities that startups have that other organizations should, you know, I've been talking about the qualities that they have that other organizations should reproduce. And I want to just look at the underlying trends that make those qualities important. Um, you hear a lot about startups these days, and really the, the most important trend going on, especially in, with software startups, is that they're cheaper to start. Um, I won't go through these reasons, but I think those are like the top four reasons why software companies are cheaper to start. Um, what I mean by promotion is free is, is just that like nowadays you don't have to spend like hundreds of thousands of dollars on PR and advertising to get the word out. If you create something good and you launch it, there, there's, there's a uh, high probability that that will sort of bubble to the top of the internet. Um, so what this means, because starting a startup is cheaper, it doesn't depend as much on raising money as it used to, even like 10 years ago. So a startup can be weighted more toward the kind of people that build the products rather than the people who are good at convincing investors to invest in them. Um, and that's pretty key. Um, so founders can, can be programmers instead of just business people. Um, also, there's a lot more transparency out there. Um, Founders at Work is just one small example of, of things that are out there to um, you know, help people understand what happens when you start a startup and give people more answers. Um, so it doesn't seem like starting a startup is this like, mysterious thing that only entrepreneurs can do. Anyone can do it. Um, you know, so how does this affect you? And it, it depends on you know, whether you're someone who is thinking about someday starting a startup or if you're just curious about kind of what you can learn from this strange animal called a startup. Um, I guess if I had to boil things down um, to what, what I've learned, um, I would say that if you are someone who has an idea for something that you think is pretty good, you are going to be much more likely to be able to try that out whether it's on your own, starting your own company, or with, within a larger company that you work for. Um, and I think that's great news for the economy. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.